Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 382, and I had a conversation with Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno. I first learned of Maria through her book, There Are No Dead Here, a story of murder and denial in Colombia. It's a remarkable nonfiction work that chronicles three quote-unquote ordinary Colombians who took on the new mafia, military, and political powers. Maria is Peruvian-American, and her childhood definitely shaped who she is today. She's an activist, an advocate for international human rights and drug policies, a lawyer, acting deputy program director at Human Rights Watch. She's the former executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance and was instrumental in Oregon's decriminalization of all drugs for personal use. We had a really incredible conversation. She's a fascinating human that has lived a fascinating life and I'm, I was so excited when she said yes when I asked her to be on the show. I, after I interviewed Mike Farrell and talked with him about his work at Human Rights Watch and I was digging around on the Human Rights Watch website and found her and then her book and uh, well the rest as they say is history and I really appreciate that, that she came on the show. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your music. All the records are there. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Super helpful. I cannot stress this enough. Please, if you're enjoying the show, take a couple minutes and rate and review it. Uh, it really makes a difference and helps push the show up through the masses. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it immensely. Be well. Take care of each other. Be kind. Be love. All right. Here we go. Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Such a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I, I am really interested in having this conversation. I ha- I've heard some of your past episodes and just really love how you kind of dig deep. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, I read your book. Wow. It was a lot to take in. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to it because I want to talk about it for sure. But I first... With all of my guests, I like to start at their their beginnings. So let's hear about where you are from and how you grew up. Yeah, um, well, I I bounced around a lot as a kid. I'm Peruvian and American. My dad was in the U.S. Foreign Service. He was a diplomat. My mother's Peruvian. Um, and so I was born in Turkey, where they were stationed. And that was uh, their favorite country. They loved it. My dad was a Turkey expert. And I left when I was two. And then we lived in different places in Brazil and Antigua and the Caribbean. But then he took early retirement when I was eight. And we moved to Peru. And I stayed there basically from third grade through my third year of college. So that was really the defining place for my childhood. I grew up bilingual and bicultural, but I didn't really live in the United States until I was 20. How was that adjustment? 
It was all right. I was already pretty clear on what I was going to do with, um, not with my life, but I, I knew I wanted to go to law school. I knew that I wanted to work on the sorts of things that I had seen happening in Peru when I was growing up. When I arrived in Lima, the country was in the middle of an internal armed conflict with the Shining Path guerrillas who were Maoists. So they were um, kind of like Pol Pot in, in Cambodia, very, um, very bloody. They believed that if they killed civilians, then they would incite the government to then kill even more. And that would finally get poor people to rise up. So it was very violent. In fact, the military did go in and kill huge numbers of people. Ultimately, I think over 60,000 people were killed mostly in very remote areas of, of the country, far from the capital in the Andes. And the people who were killed were overwhelmingly, you know, very low income, indigenous, marginalized populations. And, you know, I grew up in Lima, the capital, and we saw all these internally displaced people coming. So, you know, people who were fleeing the conflict and, you know, begging on the streets or or just working selling vegetables or or whatever they could you know you had large numbers of what were called invasions but it was basically settlements uh people who you know didn't have where to live and so they built shacks out of whatever they could and um and took over uh unused land you know, the other thing that was happening was there was an economic crisis. We had hyperinflation and prices were changing, you know, every day. And then we had, when I was 16, uh, a coup by our president who basically shut down Congress and the courts and took over everything and uh, then held new elections. But they were kind of, it was in a, a rigged system, basically. And he he ruled as an autocrat because he controlled every branch of government for, for almost 10 years. And there was a huge amount of corruption. So I, I grew up seeing all of this dysfunction and, you know, experiencing it from, from a very comfortable place, right? Um, because I wasn't part of the population that was getting killed. There were bombs in, in the city, including in my neighborhood, and there were certainly security issues. We would go camping a lot, and we my, my parents loved just getting out into nature and visiting old ruins and exploring the country, but you had to be very careful when you did that, right? I don't know. I was fascinated by it all and also really motivated to do something about all the problems. I got to work closely with some lawyers when I was in college in Peru, um, with some lawyers who were very involved in the anti-corruption fight. Um, Fujimori was still president. And that really got me thinking that law school was probably the right way for me to, to go. And, and when I came to the US, I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to do really well in school and go to law school and, and try to make a difference. That was how I was thinking. So I was I didn't I guess I didn't spend too much time adjusting to the United States. I was just very focused on. Go right in. Yeah. I'm curious, growing up in, in a, a family where you aren't, as you said, really a part of the people who are being exterminated, but having a sense that that was happening, were there conversations in the family or was it one of those things where you don't talk about it, but everybody knows it's going on? 
especially when there's an influx of people from within the own, your own country who are seeking refuge and, and safety, were people generally welcoming or did they think, go back to your own place because you pose us a threat to us? You know, um, um, Peru is a very racist and classist society. And my family was very critical of all of that, my, my immediate family. But a lot of people in my school, you know, and, and more broadly in Lima, generally viewed people who were coming in from the countryside with disdain and didn't, uh, you know, looked down on them. I think that to this day, there is a lot of stigmatization of people who come from indigenous rural areas by people who are lighter skinned or, or better off, you know, the middle and the upper classes. And that helped make the violence worse, right? Because the military was going in, in, out there and killing uh, low-income people those who were safe in Lima and were not getting killed, you know, didn't care very much. And, and that was a running theme. My, my parents found that pretty horrifying. And so I, I grew up hearing that, but, you know, it, it's, it, it's a contradiction around me, right? And for me, I, I didn't want to be part of the problem. And I was very indignant about what was happening. It's interesting because as I see grasp for power in this country and a desire for certain folks to also rule un unchecked, it's really fascinating to see how different parts of society take that in. And I have this theory that there are those who they admire that because it's something they wish they themselves could achieve. And, and so it allows for more unchecked power to keep going. Yeah, I, I think that the way racism and classism works in Peru is that most people are always trying to position themselves to get ahead. And that means they kick down uh, on, you know, anyone they can look at as, as being lesser than them for whatever reason. Uh, obviously, this is grossly unfair to many Peruvians who are wonderful people, but um, but it is a trend. Yeah. And so here you are, it's shaping you into becoming an advocate and a voice for the voiceless and someone who wants to stand up against these sorts of things. Was there any idea? We all know in our 20s, we believe we can achieve lots of stuff and that nothing will stand in our way. But were, was there ever a time where you were concerned thinking, oh, I'm going to take on some pretty powerful people and that will put me at risk? Yeah, I, sure. When when I started working in human rights, uh, covering Columbia for Human Rights Watch, I was the, the researcher. It was uh, a very dangerous time in Columbia in 2004. You know, we knew that all parties to that armed conflict were very abusive and often went after people who criticized them. 
And my job was to document what was happening and try to put pressure on the government or, um, you know, on international actors to, to get them to stop. And I, I did a lot of work early on on the paramilitaries who were these right wing groups in Colombia who were um, working very closely with the military and with very powerful people. Wealthy people, um, people at the highest levels of government, and, you know, they had expanded pretty fast in the late 90s and early 2000s throughout much of the country, taking over, you know, the territory through massacres and killings and forced disappearances. And they were known for also killing human rights defenders and community leaders, uh, basically anybody who stood up against them. Um, so that was you know, just by the because I was looking into what they were doing and trying to expose it, that was taking a risk. And at the same time, because I was coming from a U.S.-based organization, I had a U.S. passport. One of my last names is McFarland. Um, all of that gave me protection because it's much easier for them to go after, you know, the local community leader than to go after somebody who is well connected and that people are going to ask questions about, right? If something happens to her. So Although it's not unheard of, of course. It's not unheard of. And I was very careful, right? I'm not. I'm not somebody who uh, gets a thrill out of going out into dangerous places. I find them very interesting, but I don't, like, I get scared. I do take risks, but they're calculated risks, and I do everything I can to minimize that risk. So. Did you find in that work you were able to get the guerrillas or people who are in the paramilitary, anybody like that to really talk to you? I mean, really talk to you, not, not lip service, not party line, but actual conversations to, to hear their points of view. Um, it's really hard to tell whether somebody is really talking to you. <laughs> uh, I think I got a number of paramilitaries to tell me stuff that they probably didn't think much of at the time and that ended up being incriminating or, you know, either for them or for others. And I think a lot of the time it was because they underestimated me because I was a, a woman. I do think there was some sense in which they loosened up. And, and, you know, when you talk to somebody for an hour, you get a rapport. I mean, they're human beings and often they're lying but but at some point you you can get information do you think though that people think that they believe something that they really truly believe to be true that is really so far from what actually is the truth that from as an outside perspective when you are experiencing something you have the opportunity to see it without any emotion involved right you're an observer they're in it and embedded in it. So they have all their emotions and whatever they've been indoctrinated with. Was there any sense that anyone could be swayed or was it just absolutely hard line? 
I I spoke to a guerrilla leader at one point who was definitely hardline. I was interviewing him about his uh, group's use of landmines, anti-personnel landmines. And he just, you know, he stood up, walked around, lectured me on uh, why landmines were the weapon of the poor. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and you're blowing up poor people and leaving them maimed. But he... You know, he was very political and just took the positions of the of his group, and and that was that. When I spoke to paramilitaries, most of them at that point were not ideological at all. They were basically drug traffickers and people who in some cases got roped into that because they were very young and viewed this as a way to make money. And so it was all very cynical. And a lot of them were lying too, because they were trying to figure out, you know, what to say to me that would lead me down a certain path, I guess. But, but some just, you know, were kind of happy to talk and share information because I guess they, it didn't, like some of them were in prison and so they liked having a visit and maybe they didn't have much to lose by telling the truth sometimes so it's also fascinating i'm i'm call it an obsession but i'm certainly deeply interested in what makes people do the things they do mm-hmm. and especially when those choices are indirect opposition of what I would consider to be humanity, mm-hmm. human kindness, human empathy, like where that disconnect happens, that fascinates me that where, what button gets pushed in someone's mind. I mean, I think there's a lot of trauma there. Poverty, economics is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, although a number of the paramilitary leaders were solidly middle-class, mm. um, even wealthy. But maybe family members of theirs had been killed by guerrillas or they wanted to protect their property and were angry about kidnappings or other things the guerrillas had done to them. And yeah, there is ideology for some. But I think that when you live in an environment that is so damaged by violence and corruption, maybe you're making choices that are just about how to position yourself to be safer and on top. Sure. Uh, and not so much based on values or beliefs or, or anything like that. It's really just a, a very pragmatic uh, calculus. Do you see parallels to paramilitary in these other places as you as militia would be in the united states oh i think that would be that i'd need to give that some thought um i don't know enough about the militia in the united states my impression from what i've read is that you know, the little groups here are very much ideological. And the United States does not have the same context of extreme violence over many decades. 
So it's it's a little different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I mean ideologically speaking, because some of the language it sounds, you know, the idea of standing up for one's group or revenge or feeling like they're being oppressed by others. You know, it's it's sort of the same rhetoric. Yeah. No, the rhetoric is is similar. Um, it's very macho. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. <laughs> How long did you do the research and, and the culmination of everything that went into your book, which there are no dead here? Well, as I said, I read it. It's, oh, man, it is thick. And I don't mean that in a way of like, it's hard to read. It's not. It's it's just like, you're certainly, you describe everything so well. It was it was almost like as you're reading it, you sort of want to look behind you <laughs> to make sure you're not going to about to get snatched up and, you know, something's going to happen. Can you talk a little bit about the process of going into deciding to, to write the book and, and how that all went about? Yeah. So I, I worked on Columbia for Human Rights Watch for five years. And, you know, I wrote all of these human rights reports, which were, you know, deep investigations of particular topics. And I did all this advocacy in, in Washington and European capitals, and certainly with the Colombian government. But, you know, I was telling the world a lot of facts but I wasn't telling them the stories that I had connected with while I was in Colombia. And it always felt like something was missing and that, you know, for people to really understand what was happening there, they needed to get to know just individual stories. And I had met so many really brave, amazing people in Colombia who don't usually get much attention, right? Because the what you hear outside the country is usually, well, Pablo Escobar. Escobar's been dead since the early 90s. Right? It's kind of absurd that that's what people know. Or maybe they know about the FARC guerrillas, but they didn't necessarily know about the paramilitaries. They didn't know about the corruption at the highest levels of government. And they definitely didn't know about good, brave people who were trying to make things better. And I felt like I wanted to tell this more recent piece of history and help people understand what was happening in a more nuanced way in the country, but also introduce them to the people I got to know. And so I, I started out with this idea of writing a, a narrative nonfiction book about Ivan Velasquez, who was a, an investigator on the Colombian Supreme Court, who I got to know very well, um, because while I was covering Colombia, he was uh, leading these investigations that uncovered how the paramilitaries had infiltrated the Colombian Congress, right? And about a third of Congress ended up behind bars because of their collusion with the paramilitaries as a result of Ivan's investigations. And and, and Ivan did these investigations alone, right? He, he had very little support. He did get backing from a number of Supreme Court members over time, but he was the one who was really pushing them forward. And so I wanted to tell his story, but then in talking to Ivan, it became very clear that he had been uh, shaped by a friend of his called Jesus Maria Valle, who was a human rights activist uh, in Medellin in, in the 90s, at the cost of his life. And he, Valle was the first person really to call out 
how paramilitaries were infiltrating government, particularly in his home state of Antioquia, and they were spreading from there. He did get assassinated in 98. What also happened was that Ivan at the time was um, the chief prosecutor um, for Antioquia. And so he went to the crime scene. He, he saw his friend um, dead. And then shortly afterward, Ivan, working closely with a, a team of investigators, uh, helped do this. Uh, they conducted this search where they found basically all of the records of paramilitaries' finances and the people who were contributing money to them and you know all their accounts and 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 they arrested their their main accountant and this was this huge blow to the paramilitaries and several of the paramilitary leaders later told me that you know they thought this might be the end the paramilitaries went in and assassinated one by one most of the investigators who had worked on that team and for mysterious reasons, the case got taken away to Bogota, and then it got split up into a ton of little cases, and it never really progressed. So, uh, you know, their contacts in high places maybe had a hand in that. You know, I, I decided with the book that I needed to connect Ivan's story to Valle's story, because it provided that context, the historical context. Um, but also, uh, I ended up connecting it to a third character, who is a journalist called Ricardo Calderón, who uncovered how um, paramilitaries had connections even to the presidency. And so it, it, it tells a story of paramilitary influence in the Colombian government uh, through a, a nice arc. <laughs> and Ricardo is a journalist I also uh, got to know very well, incredibly brave. And also he never signed his articles with his name. You know, he kept breaking story after story uh, and, you know, taking huge risks did tremendous good for the country. And I think ultimately the story is hopeful because even though, you know, some of the people who, who did terrible things are still out and about and have lots of power, um, I think at a minimum, what these three people did um, has made it very hard for ordinary Colombians to deny that paramilitaries really did work hand in glove with very powerful people in the Colombian government. You know, for a long time, they did deny that, right? Um, so even that step, I think, is really important. And it just shows to me that even in the most desperate circumstances people can make a difference yeah. well yeah absolutely and i was just that's my takeaway one of my major takeaways after reading it and while i was reading it again as i was saying like what with every page i'm turning and i'm thinking jesus how how are these people doing this like how are they staying the course through through all of the things that are the threats and the violence and the things they're uncovering and i i kept thinking as I was moving through it, to be that brave is really something, but also understanding that these were just people who decided enough's enough and and maybe they didn't even think of themselves as brave. And in fact, I think you, you say in the book that they don't really, occur, that doesn't occur to them. To them, they're just doing what needs to be done and what's important. Yeah. Yeah, they... 
that's how they view themselves. They view themselves as committed to what they do. Ivan is a committed public servant and he cares about truth and justice. And I don't think he could have imagined himself doing anything different. And that's the same thing I heard about Valle, right? I, I had I never got to meet him. He was killed in 98, long before I started working on Colombia. But I spoke to so many people um, who viewed him as a, a real inspiration. And, you know, he took over the leadership of this human rights NGO in Medellin uh, at a moment when three of its leaders had been killed. So it... it uh, the executive director was killed, then his successor was killed, and then his successor was killed. Mm -hmm. And then Maya takes over. He knew, of course, that he was running a, a huge risk. And then toward the end of his life, he was getting threats. And, and he told people that he, you know, he was concerned about his security and, and he was concer concerned about his family, right? I, his sister told me, that at one point her son was playing by the window of their house. And Valle said, no, no, take him away from the window. He was very worried that somebody would shoot at them from outside. And sure enough, they, they did kill him soon after, but people, his friends tried to get him out of the country. Uh, they said, okay, just come out for a few months. And he couldn't. The way his friends explained it to me was just that this was who he was. He couldn't conceive of, of being apart from his people. And uh, it was a very personal thing for him because the, the paramilitaries had come in and, and committed these massacres, one in the town of his birth uh, in 96. And then the following year, you know, he had warned that they were going to commit another one in, in the county where he was a, a councilman. And he tried to bring tried to get the military or the police or the governor's office to intervene and, and protect people because the rumors were going around that the paramilitaries were coming and nobody did anything. And sure enough, the paramilitaries went in, spent five days in this town of Elaro and killed 17 people, including a 14-year-old boy, and then burned down the town, stole 2,000 head of cattle, um, and drove everybody else away. You know, so for him, these were his people. He represented them. He came from there. He was the child of, of peasants, you know, farmers. And he had worked the land as a kid. And so it that was the life that he had to lead. Right. Um, and Ricardo is just a completely committed journalist. He has zero tolerance for messing around with uh the truth or um you know twisting anything he just investigates and well if it takes him into a place that's kind of dangerous he is very savvy right he knows how to position himself when he's talking to different dangerous people <laughs> but even so he I, I describe in the book how he um at one point was basically kidnapped by his own sources because they were worried that he might have turned on them because he wasn't telling their story in time. And so they knocked him out and stuck him in the trunk of their car. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and he, I think just views that as part of the territory. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
it also struck me too that I think we think, all right, everyone's corrupt. There's no chance of anything ever changing. And this, these three are a great example of why that that's absolutely not true. That not everyone is corrupt. And in fact, one person can be a lot. Clearly three people can really be a lot. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I think, yes, there, I've met some horrible people in Colombia, uh, people who've done horrible things. But yeah, what stays with me is more the people who have tried to do good things. And I think where the vast majority lie is is somewhere in between, and it's mainly in the space of denial. And and I understand that, right? If you're surrounded by all sorts of horrible things, and you feel like you can't do much about it uh, without putting yourself or your family at risk, it's sometimes easier to pretend that none of it is happening. And of course, if you stand to gain from uh, some of the horrible things, you know, even more reason to deny that it's happening. And I think that's really common. Let's talk a minute about the global war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about that work a little bit? Yeah. So after I did work on Columbia, I did, I took different jobs at Human Rights Watch. I was working on U.S. foreign policy and working on U.S. domestic issues, including criminal legal system problems um and a common thread in all of the issues that i was looking at was the war on drugs right in in colombia um and for that matter in mexico and and in afghanistan which i did a little bit of work on prohibition had meant that you had this enormous source of wealth for organized crime that meant that they became incredibly powerful and they had the ability to buy off authorities, particularly in weak states, and, you know, protect themselves indefinitely and keep breaking it in. And what I saw over and over in Colombia was that, you know, the U.S. had all of these extradition deals and was pouring billions of dollars into the country um, in military aid, mostly military aid, a lot of it for drug control. And, you know, nothing seemed to change in terms of the cocaine supply. And they would arrest all of these drug traffickers, the leaders, but then those leaders would immediately be replaced by somebody else, right? When I started covering Colombia, the paramilitaries were the biggest drug traffickers in the country. They then supposedly demobilized but they left their businesses in the hands of their associates who then became the biggest drug traffickers. And then those guys got arrested. And then, you know, other people took the reins of the business. The business continued. You just had more and more people getting arrested. And meanwhile, people um, are getting killed by these groups. And uh, you have this whole issue, like I said, of corruption. I mean, I think the paramilitaries, some of them may have had ideological roots and been right-wing and wanted revenge against the FARC, but many of them just were into the drug trafficking business and they wanted to make money. So there was that piece. And then in, in on the U.S. side, you were seeing how so much of the problem with mass criminalization that we were seeing, mass incarceration, was people going to jail or prison 
for low-level drug offenses. So not the not the top drug traffickers, not the the heads of cartels, but you know people who are just using drugs personally or selling small amounts to support their own use, and disproportionately, these were black and brown people, right? And so the same issue of prohibition was causing human rights harms in Latin America and was causing a different set of harms in the United States. And nobody, it seemed, was really digging into the root cause, right? Or one of the root causes in exploring alternatives. And even my own organization, Human Rights Watch, hadn't really tackled it directly. Um, we had done work on different aspects of the war on drugs, um, certainly the the arrests of, of Black people for, for uh, drug use and so on. But uh, I ended up pushing for us to take a position on the war on drugs and, you know, calling for countries to explore alternatives to criminalization, uh, even when it comes to the drug trade, not just the use. You know, we we did some reporting on on the issue in the United States. Um, a big report that ended up finding that every 25 seconds, somebody in the United States got arrested for simple drug use, possession for personal use. That's the single most arrested offense in the country. Then the position of executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance opened up. And I had gotten to know the founder, Ethan Nadelman, a little bit um, because I had been exploring this drug policy work. You know, I'd been very impressed and, and the organization seemed great. And I threw my hand in the ring uh, and I ended up getting the job. And it, it was a really interesting moment because DPA had been doing some of that work of calling out the war on drugs as this, this root cause of, of so many problems, more domestically than internationally, but had been active and had been incredibly successful in moving forward marijuana legalization. And DPA had had played a huge role in many of the ballot initiatives that led to marijuana legalization in, in several states, including in California. And so I started, and, and it was around that time that, uh, it was around the time that marijuana was legalized in California. And so it was, We'd had this string of successes, and then all of a sudden, it was like, okay, now what? As I came in, because once marijuana was legalized in California, then it's like, okay, are we really going to go to each state and, and do this? Are we going to go to Nebraska, and you know, uh, or are we going to push it further? So we we pivoted a little bit. One was to push for for marijuana regulation at the federal level. And, you know, there's a bill that keeps passing the House um, yeah. and, and getting stuck in the Senate. But it's kind of amazing, right, that uh, Congress is this close to, to um, legalizing marijuana at a federal level. And we emphasize, we emphasize racial justice, right, um, making sure that people who had been convicted in the past for marijuana offenses would um, have their records expunged, trying to ensure that there are there's support for black and brown people who want to enter the business to do so. Yeah, because it's very white dominated for sure. And also, let's be honest, there's tons of people still incarcerated in this country for minor oh. drug offense. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's the other piece that we we decided to push was um, decriminalizing personal use and possession for personal use. And we ended up uh, being very actively supportive of the initiative in Oregon to decriminalize possession, which we realized was something that people were interested in. Maybe not so much because they were wanted to, to remove the criminal penalties, although that was fine, but people really wanted to have a good way to support people who are struggling with problematic drug use, right? Because it's very clear that if you just, you know, lock people up who, who have a problem with drugs, it only makes things worse. Even if they go into treatment, that may not stick readily available drugs are readily available in prison of yeah and and when you come out if you haven't been using drugs you're much more likely to overdose um when you use again coming out your tolerance is decreased but you know it's just this revolving door and when you come out of prison you can no longer access public housing other benefits it's you can't get uh, go to school, you can't get jobs, right? Because you have a record. And and so it's the worst possible way to help somebody who has a serious problem. It was very clear that people in Oregon seemed to be interested in something that would help people. And so the way that the Oregon initiative was designed was to set up a system where people could be referred to services and support. And uh, it used the money coming in from marijuana taxation to fund those services and support. Mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, I still think it's a brilliant idea. It is 100% a brilliant idea. It's It seems like a no-brainer economically, but then I think, okay, well, how much money is being made on the backs of prisoners within the industrial complex of the prisons versus how much money they think they can make by taxing the crap out of drugs? I don't know that people are even thinking so much about the money. You know, I think that there's so much stigma yeah. around use and drugs and, and it's very emotional. Mm -hmm. and there's this idea going around that you have to hit rock bottom before you can, you know, recover, you know, frankly, rock bottom is an overdose and you have thousands, tens of thousands of people overdosing every year in the United States. That is not what we want to drive people to. We want to save lives. We want to help people. Most people do not want to develop a substance use disorder. It happens usually because there are other problems in their lives, right? And this is an escape. Um, this is like the one bright spot. And what can we do to make that less appealing, less likely? Like uh, mental health options for folks is a big one. Services, housing, healthcare, education. It's so frustrating because it's so clear how this is all interwoven. It's It's all interlaced with itself. And yet the powers that be, it's like a willful ignorance to me. It's what it feels like. I'm sure it's not that, but it certainly feels like that. I think it's denial. I think it's it goes back to, it's too hard to change the system. 
Yeah. Used to it. It's easy to believe all of these terrible things about people who are using drugs uh, or people who are selling drugs, so many of which are the same people. It, it's just very dehumanizing. And, yeah. and, you know, we have lots of examples of other countries that have never criminalized in the first place or decriminalized like Portugal. And as long as you have money flowing into the services to support people, mm-hmm. it works much better. It's hard in the United States right now to get people to commit to funding anything. Um, and that's kind of part of the political system being broken. But um, yeah. That's yeah. Did they find in Oregon that once they decriminalized the the small use, the small possession charges, uh, did, did the drug use go down? Were services... Uh, were people able to f- find opportunities to get help, things like that, once it was decriminalized? I think it's a little early to say because they didn't ha- make the services available right away. Right? Ah. There's been a lag. And some things are only coming online now. Um, so I think we'll, we need to give it a, another couple of years to really see what's happening in terms of people connecting to services. You know, people aren't getting locked up, and that's a good thing. That's a good start. But this has happened at the same time as the pandemic and mm-hmm. all the kind of dislocation that was associated with that. And, you know, we do have a housing crisis yes. across the United States, but particularly in the West Coast. So, you know, there are a lot of unhoused people in Portland um, and that's been getting a lot of attention and people tend to then conflate, oh, you know, you decriminalize drugs and now we see all these unhoused people on the street. So it must be connected somehow. <laughs> no, that's happening nationwide or throughout the West Coast. But um, yeah, I think it's a bit early to to draw conclusions. Well, I appreciate the work you, you're doing and that you have done. You're one of those people that I like to say, I'm glad you're on the planet. You think you make it a much better place to be. And thank you for shining the light on things and pushing to help humankind. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this show and having these conversations. It's beautiful. Uh, Absolutely. Everyone, there are no dead here. A story of murder and denial in Colombia is the book. Can you tell everyone where they might find you and the book? Well, I have a website uh, and you can just do there are no dead here.com. Uh, or myname.com. Um, and, you know, every every online bookstore will have it. Support independent bookstores if you can. And uh, I'm also still at Human Rights Watch. So um, you can follow what we're doing on our website, uh, hrw.org. Yeah, and I'll put links on heyhumanpodcast.com for everyone. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much. It was yeah. lovely. It's really great to meet you. And uh, keep me posted. If you have anything that you want to talk about in the future, you're always welcome. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.